0: Well, as I promised, we are going to be getting back into our study of the book of Romans this morning, and uh, we took a break for the holiday, and um, we're going to jump back in where we left off, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there with me, Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to be, begin reading uh, in verse 11. Paul writes, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Father, there's a lot here for us to get our minds around. And so we ask that your spirit would illuminate us grant us understanding of what Paul meant by what he wrote here, and how it relates to us today, and how our lives should be different as a result of what we learn today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past Thursday, leaders from around the world gathered in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem, which is Israel's official memorial to the six million Jews murdered during World War II. I know a number of us have been there together on our trips to Israel. But uh, this past Thursday was the Fifth World Holocaust Forum. And the theme was, quote, Remembering the Holocaust, Fighting Anti-Semitism. And the ceremony just happened to mark the 75th anniversary of the closing of Auschwitz, which was a concentration camp in Poland. Well, Providentially, on Thursday night, Kelly and I and our daughter Hannah watched a movie called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Anybody ever seen that movie? I'd never seen it, and I'd always wanted to see it, and... It's based on a novel about the eight-year-old son of a Nazi commandant assigned to a German concentration camp, and this little boy secretly befriends a boy his same age, a little Jewish boy, through the barbed wire fence of that camp, and the story tells the tragic and unexpected consequences of their forbidden friendship. And it was a a moving portrayal of the extreme hatred and paranoia that the Germans had toward Jews, which fueled the Holocaust. The aim of the Nazi regime was to totally exterminate the Jews and completely eradicate their culture and their history because they considered them the scourge of the earth, And sadly, there are many in our world who still think this way about Jewish people, which should come as no surprise in light of the recent rise of anti-Semitic attacks around the globe. Even so, the Holocaust, without question, remains the most notorious example of anti-Semitism in modern times. And what is most shocking to me about the Holocaust is the mass murder of European Jews took place in nations that were steeped in the Christian faith. Germany, Poland, France. And believe it or not, history shows that Christians, more than anyone else in the world, have been guilty of anti-Semitism. Just listen to some... Shocking statements made by Christian leaders throughout church history. This is Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers um, back in the first century. He said this, quote, "...the custom of circumcision, circumcising the flesh, was given to you Jews as a distinguishing mark. The purpose of this was that you and only you might suffer the afflictions that are now justly yours." That only your land be desolated and your cities ruined by fire, that the fruits of your land be eaten by strangers before your very eyes. John Chrysostom, who was known as the golden mouth preacher in the third century, wrote a series of sermons um, with anti. Jewish sentiment, this is what he said in one of those sermons, now then let me strip down for the fight against the Jews themselves so that the victory may be more glorious so that you will learn that they are abominable and lawless and murderous and enemies of God. For there is no evidence of wickedness I can proclaim that is equal to this. In other words, there's no one more wicked than the Jews. A lesser known figure God Godfrey of Boulon, uh, who was a Frankish knight of the first uh, crusade in the uh, 1100s, he said this as he went out on his crusade, set out on the crusade, he said, I swear to go on this journey only after avenging the blood of the crucified one, Jesus, by shedding Jewish blood and completely eradicating any trace of those bearing the name Jew, thus assuaging God's own burning wrath. One source claims that the Franks torched a synagogue filled with Jews, and as those inside were being burned alive, the crusaders circled the synagogue, holding their crosses high in the air, singing the hymn, Christ, we adore thee. Can you imagine? And then maybe most alarming. Martin Luther, the one we know that God used as the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote uh, an article or book called The Jews and Their Lies. This is in the 1500s. And this is Martin Luther I'm quoting now. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct, now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming. I shall give you my sincere advice, first, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians." Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. And fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. And Luther's stated goal in all of this was, quote, that we all may be free of this insufferable, devilish burden the Jews. There are some Jews, even to this day, who argue that Adolf Hitler simply brought to flower the seed that was planted by Martin Luther. Well, if you notice, the common theme by which these Christian leaders justified their hatred and hostility toward the Jews is that The Jews were the enemies of God, and they deserved to suffer and die because they killed Jesus. Now, we know that's partly true. Acts Acts chapter 2 makes that clear, that they were partly to blame for the crucifixion of Christ, along with the Romans and God himself, and not to mention our sin that killed Jesus. But they felt justified based on this distorted perspective of the Jews. They they, they not only had had the responsibility, Christians not only have the responsibility, but the right to take revenge on the Christ-killing Jews who are under a divine curse and have been cast away by God forever. Now, this is obviously an unbiblical viewpoint that stands in stark contrast to how Paul viewed his fellow Jews. Rather than gloating over their suffering, Paul grieved over their spurning of. Jesus as their Messiah, and he longed and prayed for their salvation. We've been seeing that here in in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And then here in chapter 11, Paul made it clear that despite their rejection of God's son, God has not rejected the Jews forever. In fact, in the future, God will rescue them from all the hatred and hostility that they have faced throughout the centuries and still face to this day. And he will fulfill his promises to restore them to their land and when Christ returns, they'll finally recognize and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And in the meantime, Christians, Gentile believers in particular, shouldn't view or treat the Jews as the scourge or the bane of the earth, but as the blessing to the entire world that God said they would be. Genesis chapter 12, verse three, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the Abrahamic promise or covenant. He went on to repeat that in Genesis twenty two eighteen after Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac, he spared Isaac and he said, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The fact of the matter is, none of us would be sitting here this morning as Christians if it weren't for the Jews. And so rather than looking down on them, we should look up to them. You ready for this? Like the Gentile dogs that we are. Sitting under the table, just so thankful for the crumbs that dropped to the floor during the meal. Turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, a familiar story that Jesus told. And this was an actual account, an actual exchange that Jesus had with a a Gentile woman. The Syrophoenician descent, this is Matthew 15, verse 21, Jesus went from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus had said, hey, I'm not here for the Gentiles. I came here for the Jews. And you're a Canaanite, you're a a Gentile, and so I don't have time for you. Verse 25, but she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. We are that woman. We have been blessed. By the crumbs of Christ. And during his life and ministry, as you know, Jesus focused primarily on the Jews, but they rejected him as their savior and crucified him. And yet, this was all part of God's sovereign plan so that he could extend the offer of salvation to the Gentiles as well. You're still there in Matthew. Turn to Matthew 21. And Jesus told two shocking parables, Matthew chapter 21, and this is all good background for our text this morning in Romans 11, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, listen to another parable, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey, When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stolen a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. When the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance." They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons." Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures a stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And so this is obviously a reference to how God had established the Jews and he likens them to a a vineyard and how he had cared for them. And then when he sent prophets and priests to minister to them, they rejected them. And ultimately, he sent them his son, thinking that surely they'll respect my son, but they killed his son. And so the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the Jews, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's the Gentiles. Look at chapter 22. We have the parable of the marriage feast, which is a similar, has a similar point or intent. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast for my son. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Interesting, a possible reference to the destruction of Rome, or excuse me, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. We're the riffraff off the street that was invited to the wedding. We got a special Invitation. Because all the original guests were no-shows. They could care less. And so God in his grace and his mercy extended the invitation to us. And the point is, if the Jews had never rejected Christ, we Gentiles would have never received Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so providentially, God used the Jews' rejection of Christ to bring the Gentiles to salvation in Christ. And now the tables have turned and God wants to use us as Gentile believers to bring the Jews to salvation in Christ. And so all that to say, rather than despising the Jews, we should hold them in high regard in our hearts and lift them up in our prayers, even as Paul did, and reach out to them with the love of the gospel. According to what Paul wrote here in Romans 11, at present, God has sovereignly chosen a remnant of the Jews to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, while the rest have been hardened to the truth in order to provide time for Gentiles to be saved. In other words, the hardening of the nation of Israel is not total, nor is it final. There is a future for the nation of Israel, and we're gonna get to that, Lord willing, next week when we look at verses 25 and 26. And what we, what we will see, just a quick preview there uh, of those verses, is that as soon as all the Gentiles that God has chosen to be saved have come to faith in Christ, and the Jews have been made sufficiently jealous by the way that God has been focusing his attention on non Jews. There will be a widespread repentance and regeneration among the Jews Jews at Christ's second coming. And again, based on what Paul said in the previous chapter, chapter 10, about the Jews' stubborn refusal to receive the righteousness to um, offer to them through faith alone in Christ alone, there would be a natural question in people's mind, well, God must have completely and permanently rejected the Jews. But he wants to be clear that God has only partially and temporarily hardened the majority of the Jews, which is all part of his merciful plan, again, to include the Gentiles in salvation. And for that, we should be grateful to God and we should be grateful to the Jews. Last time we looked at how God's hardening of the Jews is partial, that was verses one through 10. Today we're gonna see that it is not permanent. And again, last time we said in verses 1 through 10, Paul gave proofs, four of them, that God had not rejected the Jews entirely. Well, here in verses 11 through 24, Paul provided more proofs, in fact, three proofs, that God has not permanently rejected the Jews. Now, notice verse 13 for a second. He says, but I'm speaking to you who are, what? Gentiles. I think it's helpful to keep in mind that Paul wrote this letter to churches in Rome, which had been undergoing a radical shift from being a Jewish majority to, um, uh, from being a, a, a Gentile Jewish, a Jewish majority and a Gentile minority but now they were a Gentile majority and a Jewish minority. In other words, there was many more Gentiles in the churches in Rome than there were Jewish converts. And as a result of this shift, some of the Gentile believers thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think, and they looked down on their Jewish brothers and sisters, and furthermore, Jewish Christians in general were The brunt of a lot of animosity and hostility among Gentiles or from Gentiles, because they resisted assimilating into Gentile culture. They refused to abandon or modify their own practices, which we're gonna learn more about it when we get to Romans 14, which made them unpopular and bred anti-Semitism. And so Paul wanted to make sure that the Gentile believers in Rome played no part in anti-Semitism of any kind. And so he gave these proofs that God was not permanently done or had permanently rejected the Jews. Verses 11 through 15, we see the purpose of Israel's transgression. Verses 16 through 22, the parallel of Gentiles' presumption. And then thirdly, the prospect of Israel's restoration, verses 23 and 24. So let's look first of all at the purpose of Israel's transgression. And he said something familiar here. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fail did they. May it never be. This is the second question that Paul posed in chapter 11 in response to an imaginary opponent. Verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. You'll remember in chapter 9, Paul explained in the last couple of verses there how Israel had stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But here in chapter 11, Paul adamantly affirmed that even though Israel had tripped and fallen over Christ... They were still able to recover and remain in the race. They were down, but they weren't out. God was not through with them yet. Their failure to accept Jesus as their Messiah was colossal. Indeed, it was an epic fail. But it was not irreversible. In fact, notice what he said, verse 11, But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The transgression, the transgression that Paul is referring to refers to the Jew's sin of crucifying Jesus and rejecting his offer of salvation by grace through faith alone. And again, in chapter 9, um, it says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness this is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Yet this was all part of God's sovereign plan, so that the Gentiles could be included in his salvation, and so he could ultimately use the Gentiles, Gentile believers in particular, to make the Jews jealous and woo them to repent and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's what he already has said in chapter 10, verse 19, Quoting Deuteronomy there, Moses in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. He goes on to make reference to this. He says, verse 12, Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their future is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? This point there is Israel's sin of killing Christ and spurning the gospel pushed the doors of salvation wide open so that everyone in the world could have the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. And so the Jews' loss was the Gentiles' gain. And the church, which is made up primarily of Gentile converts in our day, inherited the privilege of being God's witness to the world. And one of the primary people groups that God wants us to witness to is the Jews. And he says, if we've already been blessed, then can you imagine the blessing, how much more we'll be blessed when their fulfillment comes. In other words, the Gentile world will experience even greater benefits, greater blessings when Christ returns and the Jews will recognize him as the one that they have pierced. Zechariah twelve ten, and they'll repent and receive him as their Lord and Savior. Can you imagine? And I think this is a reference to... Christ coming and setting up his kingdom on earth, reigning for a thousand years, during which time the entire world will enjoy universal peace and righteousness. But notice verse 13, he said, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So Paul made a big deal about the fact that God had called him to reach the Gentiles. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, throughout his epistles, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and his passion and his prayer was that by focusing on the Gentiles and bringing the good news of salvation to the Gentiles, that God would use his ministry to make his fellow Jews jealous and, again, lead them to faith in Christ. God's ultimate purpose in setting aside Israel was to bring them back to himself. It wasn't to just reject them and say, you're done, out of here, see you later, wouldn't want to be, right? It was to restore them. By extending the special relationship that they forfeited with him to the Gentiles. And so when Jews see Gentile believers enjoying all the blessings that were originally intended and reserved for them, it makes them want to enjoy those blessings themselves. Turn back to Acts 13 for a second, and we see an example of how Paul's ministry worked. And here's a little microcosm of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Acts 13, verse 42, this was Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. In the city of Antioch, and it says as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them. Next Sabbath, this is Acts 13, verse 42. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. And began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth." When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And so that was Paul's method. He would show up into a city, and he would first go to the synagogues where he could share the gospel with the Jews, and very few of them would respond. And so the next thing you know, he would go to the marketplace or to the Colosseum or wherever he could find a place, a hearing, and then typically Gentiles came to Christ in droves. But it made the Jews jealous. Notice verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, he's not being disparaging at all against the Jews. In fact, he's saying look at the great possibility, look at the great potential, look at the great hope for their future. Granted, when Christ came the first time, the Jews rejected him, which led to the Gentiles being reconciled to God. But when Christ comes again, the Jews will accept him, which will lead to their resurrection, not literally, but figuratively, as a nation that appears to have died will come back to life. We don't know this for sure, but Paul may have had in mind Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. Remember that? In Ezekiel chapter 37, that vision that God gave Ezekiel of these bones just scattered in the desert, and all of a sudden the word of God was preached, and there was a rattling, and, and all of a sudden the bones came back to life, and, 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 and uh, they, the bodies were restored. Something Like something out of a sci-fi movie. And that was originally intended as a picture of the nation of Judah returning from exile from Babylon. But it was also intended to illustrate what it would look like when Israel returned to the promised land at Christ's second coming. A a resurrection, a revitalization of the people of Israel. Paul also could have been thinking of Jesus' words in the story of the prodigal son, when the father said, for this son of mine was dead and is now what? Alive. He wasn't literally dead. He was spiritually dead, but now he had come to life. And again, I think that story was intended to be a testimony of prodigal Israel when it comes to its senses and repents and returns to him. And so... While Israel's transgression was great indeed in crucifying their Messiah, it was all part of God's purpose. Secondly, we see the parable peril of Gentile's presumption. The peril of Gentile's presumption and Notice that Paul uses two analogies here or metaphors to prove that God is not done with Israel. He uses a, a, an analogy of baking, an analogy of gardening. So if you're a baker, you're a gardener, you're going to be tracking with what Paul said here. Um, notice verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. This was a reference to God's instruction uh, in the Old Testament, Numbers 15 verses 17 to 21, about the offering, about offering the first portion or the first fruits of the harvest to him. Uh, Whenever the Jews harvested their their grain, they were required to make a loaf of bread from the grain that they gathered and present it to the Lord. And if the priest accepted it, uh, that offering, it signified that the rest of the harvest was also holy and acceptable to God. He goes on to say, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. So Paul quickly switched metaphors from bread dough to an olive tree. And he said the, the root here and, and the piece of dough, that's the, the, the heart of the story here. What, what, what are those? What, who do those represent? Well, I think they both represent the same thing. The Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the promises that God made to them and all the blessings that flow from their descendants or from them to their descendants. As the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, served as the first fruit, if you will. He was the one that had been set apart by God in the land of the Chaldeans. Remember, he was a pagan. He was a Gentile. There was no Jews. He was the first Jew. Uh, God plucked him out. And set him apart to form a new society, a new nation that would be distinct from all the other nations of the world. And so all those who are part of God's chosen line, who are set apart with Abraham, are connected to this root, the root of the olive tree. And, and God likened Israel to an olive tree in the Old Testament. Jeremiah eleven sixteen. 16, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. This is one of the most vivid illustrations in the Bible. But again, for those of us that don't necessarily live in an agrarian culture like the Jews, this might seem foreign to us. And so let me explain just quickly what the normal horticultural pattern was in those days. Normally, in order to transform a wild olive tree into a fruit-bearing tree, a branch from a cultivated tree was grafted into the trunk of the wild olive tree. But here in Paul's analogy, he reversed that normal process, saying that God grafted branches from wild olive trees, that's us, that's Gentiles, into the trunk of the cultivated olive tree, that's Israel. So Paul's point was that God pruned off the old fruitless branches, the unbelieving Jews, and branches from the wild olive tree were grafted in their place. That's believing Gentiles, that's the picture here. And as a result, Gentile believers enjoy all the rich blessings and promises made to Abraham. Notice he says, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root, the root supports you. So even though we've received God's covenant promises that the Jews forfeited, we must never arrogantly assume that we are somehow superior to the Jews. Just because we accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord doesn't mean that we're smarter than them or better than them. And maybe most importantly, don't be deluded or conceded enough to think that we've taken the place of Israel. We've simply been included in God's overall plan of salvation and are connected to and supported by his promises to the Jews, who by the way are still the source and channel of God's blessings to the world. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that quote salvation is from the Jews. And so here we sit as Gentile believers and we are indebted to the Jews. We owe our salvation to them, if you will. We, we should relate to the Jews as weeds to flowers. There's a wild, gangly, olive tree bush and this majestic, cultivated, ancient olive tree. Besides, we have no reason to boast or brag about our salvation because we didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It was freely given to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Notice what he says in verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. The Jews weren't broken off because... They were no longer God's chosen people. And he was done with them and was casting them away forever. They were cut off because they refused to believe in Christ. And the only reason why Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree is because God granted us repentance and faith. It wasn't based on who we were or what we did. And so consequently, rather than being smug and self-righteous, just like someone else we know, who does that sound like? The Jews, particularly the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they were smug and self-righteous and somehow thought they were superior to everyone else and they looked down at the Gentiles, viewed them as dogs. We should be humble knowing that God Could cut us off just as easily as he did them. And that's why he says, Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You little wild branch. In other words, we shouldn't boast in our privileged position or think that somehow we're above stumbling. Into sin ourselves, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, if any man thinks he stand, take what? Heed lest he fall. And then verse 22, and this is such a great verse, it's a standout text, it's worthy of a sermon of its own, but notice verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So Paul is simply saying that this illustration of the olive tree reveals two contrasting attributes of God's character, his goodness and his severity, his kindness and his sternness. His sternness was demonstrated in removing Israel from her favored status, whereas his goodness is demonstrated by including Gentiles in his plan of salvation. But that goodness and that kindness that we have received, that we have been recipients of, should not be taken for granted. He says, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, Paul was not saying that a believer can lose their salvation. We we know that would contradict what he said in so many other places in his letters. He was simply emphasizing what is taught throughout the New Testament that true saving faith lasts. It endures. That that perseverance is the hallmark of authentic faith. And so if someone professes faith in Christ and later falls away, it probably is because they were never truly saved to begin with. 1 John 2.19. And so this is the peril, the pitfall, the danger. And Paul is warning here in verses... Uh, these, these verses here, verse um, 16 through 22, this is a warning. He's warning us against the perils of presumption and pride and conceit. And then lastly and quickly, the, the prospect of Israel's restoration, verses 23 and 24. And, and we know the word prospect Means the, the possibility or likelihood of some future event occurring. And so he's not quite there yet to say it. He's not about to say it. He's not going to say, yeah, there is a future for Israel. He's going to get to that in verse 25. But for now, let's just consider the possibility of it. And so in these last two verses, Paul indicated that God could very easily restore Israel whenever he wants. In fact, the restoration of the Jews would be much easier for God than the inclusion of the Gentiles. Why? It says, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature, see he was going against the normal pattern there, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? If God could bring wild outsiders like us into his kingdom, then surely he can bring the native insiders back to him. It's totally natural to assume and highly probable that the olive tree will flourish again in the future. And it will. And Paul will expand on that in the next section, which we will look at next week. But in the meantime, let me suggest some practical implications that we can draw from this text, okay? Just just a handful here as we close. Number one, regard the kindness and the severity of God. Consider it, think about it. Those who accept God's gracious offer of salvation experience his kindness by being forgiven for their sin and by being given the privilege of communing With him forever in heaven. But those who reject his offer of salvation experience his severity by being cut off from him forever in hell. In chapter two, Paul said this Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, the fact that you are still sitting here this morning alive, breathing, is an evidence of God's kindness and tolerance and patience with you, particularly if you have yet to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't take lightly God's kindness towards you today He said, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Regard the kindness and the severity of God. Are you a recipient of God's kindness or will you be an object of God's wrath? Number two, remember who you once were before you came to Christ, which should make you extremely grateful for your salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Do you remember what that was like? To be without hope and without God. We need to remain amazed that we have been brought inside by God's kindness. So remember who you once were. Thirdly, repent. Repent of any anti-Semitic thoughts, feelings, words, or actions. I hope it's just an obvious truth that there is no place for anti-Semitism in the church. This should be the last place on the planet that that, that's ever even thought of or, or felt or spoken or acted upon. As one Jew put it, How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. And so repent of any anti-Semitic thoughts, feelings, or actions. And then finally, number four, reach out to Jews with the hope of the gospel. Reach out to Jews with the hope of the gospel. We should graciously and, and humbly Target Jewish people. Lovingly share the good news of the gospel with them. We we should live our lives in such a winsome way that they will be be attracted to Christ and want to have what, what we have. That they would be jealous, if you will, of our love, the love that we share, the love that we. Enjoy the, the peace that we have, the joy we have, the hope we have, the self control we have. Those things should make unbelievers jealous. And again, what a great reminder to us that God didn't save us so that we could sit in here every Sunday and Wednesday and Monday night and Tuesday morning and Friday morning and whenever we gather for whatever we do and just soak up all this truth and just think we're something special. He intends us to go out of here with all this truth and share the good news and live the kind of lives that will pique people's interests and make them wonder why we are the way we are. And make them want what we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this very intriguing text. So much here to think about and so much here to apply. And so, would you help us as we meditate on this passage and this sermon, as we maybe talk about it with our grow group, with our family members? today or during this next week, that you would change us and conform us more to the image of Christ as a result of what we heard this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do have a a couple of our elders available, as always, to meet any need you might have. And so if you have any questions about the message today, or maybe you want some prayer, or maybe you have some other Need for counsel or something, just come and and talk with one of our elders up here. We've got George and John. And um, again, if you are visiting with us, thanks for coming. And we are having lunch here in just a few minutes. And so we would love for you to stay. Be our guest and stay and uh, enjoy some chili and cornbread with us. It's an opportunity to get to know some folks and uh, maybe to learn a little bit more about our church. And so, what I want to ask everyone to do, if you don't mind, and by the way, just I want to say this ahead of time. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, being so generous. And I I couldn't, I lost track of the amount of crock pots I saw coming in here this morning with chili and cornbread and all that stuff. So thank you for your generosity and your willingness to share. And so we're going to head out in just a second over to the kitchen area. And uh, there's going to be two lines there's going to be a line in front of the kitchen, and there's going to be another line. at the at the front doors of the of the worship center, so there, you know, shouldn't be just one line. You can go to those two lines; it'll make things quicker. Want to encourage you to go in and and grab some food and sit down. If if there's not enough room in the worship center, uh, we're going to use the uh, student center, the 220 room, as an overflow, so you can just bring your stuff out, and uh, we'll take about 40 minutes or so to eat and fellowship together, and then we'll gather together all in the worship center. Uh, for our annual meeting, which won't be very long, we want to purposely make it short. We know that you're tired and maybe you got kids that have to go down for naps and things like that. So, um, but if we could do this as soon as we dismiss, um, if some of the guys could quickly help us stack the chairs in here and to get them stored in the in the chair closet, and uh, the rest of you can line up, and uh, we'll get this all taken care of in, in a short amount of time. So, uh, anyway, let me pray and thank the Lord for our food, and then we can be dismissed. Father, we're grateful for this time of fellowship that we can enjoy together now. Thank you for the food that you have so abundantly provided. I pray that uh, the conversations that are had now, the interactions that take place, would be pleasing to you and would be uh, sharpening and encouraging um, that this body would be built up and more conformed to the image of Christ as we spend time uh, together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.